Well, as we gather here together, we're just uh, reminded of what Adrian said, that there are a lot of people that there are no churches this morning for them because they're destroyed. A lot of people for whom there are no mosques because they're destroyed. And others of other faiths are none. There's nowhere for them to gather and gather their thoughts. So, Father, thank you and help us never to take for granted the freedoms that we've got and the ability to come here together and worship. And those of us who are watching this online or later on, that you just bring us together in the one fellowship for Jesus' sake. Amen. Closing remarks. When somebody says that, you sort of look at your watch and think, are we there already? Well, watches mean nothing at this point, right? So I'm in charge and I'm up here and you're down there. This is Paul's closing remarks. Here's the summary because this is the last, as I remember, this is the last Sunday in the Philippians. This was about 25 years after the crucifixion. Paul's in prison. He's writing to a church and as Adrian reminded us last week, it's a Roman colony, so it's a very different setup, very military setup. This was a compassionate, very personal letter. It wasn't telling them off, like we said in Galatians, where he said, you foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? I wouldn't like that letter. This one is much more compassionate. And in chapter one, he challenged them to remain strong. And that was a military challenge. Stay firm. Chapter two, remember that beautiful Christ hymn. And he said, you too imitate that humility of Christ. Chapter three, there was warnings. And as we were reminded last week, it's Remember where your citizenship is. You might have a passport, or in my case, in some other two passports, but that's just a human earthly thing. Our citizenship's in heaven. Even though they were Roman citizens, they were also citizens of heaven. And then finally, we're down to the closing remarks. So I'm just going to speak in a few verses this week, and it's the middle part of chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about those things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. So here's the context. We're at the last chapter of a very short letter of a couple of hundred words. You could read it all at one sitting in less than 15 minutes. So imagine you're in that congregation, the scrolls arrived, and someone's reading it out. Because most people would have been illiterate. And that's why Paul repeats things, because as teachers know, repetition is one form of helping embed learning. And that's why rejoice, I say rejoice. And you'll see things repeated. So Paul has the church in mind. He wants to remind the Philippians of their calling. Yes, they're Romans, but their bigger calling, the called out ones, the ecclesia. They're the people of God called out to go into the world to save the world. But all of this would just be theoretical if he didn't root what he was saying, not in doctrine, because he didn't worship the Old Testament, he worshipped Jesus, the Word. And there's a tendency sometimes that we go to the Word for the sake of the Word, rather than going to the Word to find Jesus. And I think that's what he was trying to distinguish here. I want you to practice stuff, but what I want you to practice is the humility you've seen in Christ. Not what I'm saying is Paul, that's important. But the most important thing is for you to walk in the shadow of Jesus. 
but he wants to be practical because all this can be lovely. You know, I know all that stuff. Paul elsewhere said, as a Pharisee, I was perfect. He used a really strong word in Greek. I was perfect under the law, but I count that as loss for the sake of knowing Jesus. Then he has this lovely word in Greek that's got three letters, and we translate it in English, therefore. And it's a bit like but. You know, somebody praises you, and then they go, but. And you know, what's coming here? So Paul is saying, therefore. So this, therefore, refers back to the three chapters before. Because Jesus is still at work, because you're called by God, because of what Jesus did, because you shine like stars, because of the resurrected Christ, because your citizenship's in heaven, because of his power, and the Greek word for power is where we get dynamite from, dunamis. That is an explosive power of the resurrection when God reached into the grave and raised his son from the dead. Because of that, because of all those things, I'm telling you to stand firm. So this isn't Paul. He's going back to say there is a theological precedent for this. In fact, there's a human precedent in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm pointing you back to him. And for this reason, as citizens in a Roman colony, and he uses a military term, take your guard, stand firm. The enemy's all around you. And then he says, I want everything you do from this point on to be set in the context of thanksgiving. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. So they're hearing this a couple of times when this is being read out to them. Now, the way that this is written, it doesn't really translate into English. But it could have been better translated as stop worrying and start being thankful. Because the state he found them in was not a state of thankfulness. So he was encouraging them to set aside the fear and the trepidation and the anxiety and the worry. He knew that's where they were. And he said, I want you to set that aside and I want you to imbue yourselves with a spirit of thanksgiving, a spirit of rejoicing. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, says, joy is the serious business of heaven. Isn't that wonderful? And God lets us into that because the word rejoice in Philippians is mentioned nine times. Remember, this is being read to you. And in four chapters, it's rehearsed nine times. The word joy appears five times. To rejoice, twice. And the secret of the joy for Paul was Jesus Christ. This wasn't a sentiment. It wasn't a value. It wasn't just a, an emotion. The letter begins with Jesus and it ends with Jesus. And in the middle, 40 times, four zero times, in about 200 words, Paul mentions Jesus' name. 17 times in the first chapter alone. Now that's missed when you read it. If you're sitting there, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the Savior, Jesus Christ, 17 times in that first chapter, that's an average of one quote every other verse. So if you're trying to say, what is it that's inspiring Paul? Look at the use of his phrases. Why is there joy? Because of what Jesus did. Now what stops us rejoicing and being thankful? I don't even think about this and looking at some of the media. We're worrying. We're fearful. All the pressures that's out there, the media and the news. I do thought for the day, as some other people do, and often I'll go to the news to try to find a good luck, a good news story. Do you know I'm often on the third page before I find something? And it's like a footnote somewhere. Because the media that is our gateway to news is mostly, and I understand the reasons, but it's dominated by what we might say is bad news. And then over there, oh, by the way, this happened. And those are the things that lift me. Those are the grace notes. The things that say, well, you know, there's something happening here. We don't look for them often. Because it doesn't come naturally. It seems an odd thing. Can't you imagine rejoicing 
uh, when everything's really bad and people go, your man's mad. And yet surely what we should be doing is looking for good in things. Because it's a discipline, it's something we've got to work at. So what helps us rejoice? Paul wants to be practical, being together. The word saint, S-A-I-N-T, in the singular, does not appear in the New Testament. It's always saints with an S. Because individual religion doesn't exist. Individual faith, of course. But when you're coming together, the call is to be together, to support each other. Like strands in a rope. The more strands in a rope that are there, the stronger the rope. And when we come in fellowship, we can share, and the idea of the stories will be to hear, to have an insight for nine or eight minutes into somebody's life. And you're going away going, well, I've learned something from that. Recognizing and naming our blessings. How often do we do that? Sharing the good stories, not just the sacred stories, because God is the God of the whole world. And sometimes if something happens over there and it isn't Christian or religion, we sort of gloss over it. But there's wonderful things happening in the world. Great technological advances as well as some difficult things. Should we not be rejoicing in those things too? Maybe we need to have more in our liturgy about worshipping and from a thankful heart. And the old 1662 prayer book, when you did the liturgies there, there was a constant refrain about being rejoiceful both in the morning and evening services. And sometimes maybe we should just organise events just to give thanks. Because often when we pray, it can just be a long list of things we want. Whenever what we should be also doing is spending at least the same amount of time thanking God for answered prayer. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Paul now has this interesting thing. In Greek, there isn't a verb. It's just God near. That's it. And that means he's here today and he will be there in the future. So wherever you go, wherever you are in the world, God will be there as well as he is here. He's not just the God of the present. He's the God of the now and the future until he comes back. Because of that, is that meaning that Paul says, oh, the second coming's round the corner? Or does he really mean that Jesus is only dead 30 years, you know, because the Lord's near? Well, we actually don't know. But what we do know is every year and every day that we live is a day and a year closer to Jesus coming back. And Paul says, because that shadow of the return of Jesus falls over the church, we should be, and Greek means big-hearted. Gentleness really, it's a bit soppy, gentleness at times. It's a much stronger word in the original language. It actually means you should open your heart. Best translated, be inclusive. We should be an inclusive people. We shouldn't have a list of rules before people get in. You know, this idea that you've got to fulfill all this stuff before you're acceptable. I don't find that in the New Testament. So what Paul's saying here is you should be big-hearted. And it made me think, what would a gentle church look like? Surely we'd be open to others. Everybody has a past, but everybody has a future. We should be reaching out to people, and not just to win them for Christ, although that's important. We should be reaching out simply because God and Jesus commanded us to do so. We shouldn't be just content with diversity. Now, there's a sermon in this alone. Diversity is the recipe to make a cake. Inclusion is when the ingredients come together and you get a cake. And most of us are happy with diversity, but look at all the color, look at all the numbers, look at all the genders, look at everything. Aren't we wonderful? That is diversity. That's the starting point. But what God's calling us for is to do something with that diversity, to bring them together. If you like, diversity is being invited to a dance, inclusion is being asked to dance. Now, are we asking people to dance? Are we really involving people in every element? Because that, for me at least, is what differentiates diversity and inclusion. Are we big-hearted, slow to judge other people? And do we teach on this? 
And do we have practical projects? We do in this church have lots of practical projects where we open up and we include people. Sadly, there are a lot of churches for whom that really isn't something they do. They don't think it's Christian. Don't be anxious about anything. (laughs) It's a very easy thing to say today, isn't it? Don't be anxious, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. After I finish here, Sam's going to be praying. And it's interesting here that there are three different words for prayer used. And the first word is actually used of worshipping God, putting God in his place, because that's where true worship and prayer starts. Thanking God for who he is, not telling him how great he is, because we sometimes get into that, but actually thanking God for who he is. And once that happens, then it's the public petition, and it's praying for, to God for particular things for the world. And then it moves down to the personal request. And part of that then is also in thanksgiving. How do you thank if you're not giving God thanks for answered prayer? So although it doesn't mention answered prayer here, I am sure in that early church, what Paul was saying is, of course you petition, of course you pray, of course you give God his place, but you should also be openly welcoming people by showing them that God does stuff. God actually does stuff. I remember in the signs and wonders stuff in the 70s, John Wimber went along to a church and he heard people being prayed for to heal and he went at the end of the church and came up to the minister and says, when do we do the stuff? Because he said it's not enough just to pray for stuff. Now, prayer is extremely important, don't get me wrong, but it has to be only one hand, one wing of the plane. The other is to do something with it. That's what Paul's exhorting them to do. So how do we give thanks? The Eucharist, the communion that's happening. We need to give thanks in liturgy. When was the last time you went to someone and said thanks for doing something? When was the last time you wrote a letter? Handwritten letter? Handwritten card to someone thanking them just for being there for you? Practice thanking people outside the fellowship, outside your family. And maybe again, we need a special event now and again to come together just to thank God for what he does. And then when he said, therefore, because of all this stuff, this is what you should do. And then this is the consequence. If you do all this stuff, then the peace of God, which you can't even begin to imagine, is what that means. It'll guard your hearts. That's a military term for the Roman garrison. It's as though Jesus is standing sentinel on your life. Jesus has placed his angels and his spirit within you to be your guard. And this shalom, it's a beautiful Hebrew word. Um, It doesn't really have an English translation. It means wholeness. It means harmony. It means body, mind, and spirit being one. So the idea for a, a, a Jew, for someone to be saved only in their spirit, they couldn't get their head around that. This is about God reaching in and changing the whole person, body, mind, and spirit. And this is based again on Jesus. So peace is not simply the end of hostilities. We often think of peace as the absence of war. It's not. If that were the case, there'd be peace in a lot of countries because there's no longer the noise of battle. But that's just the beginning. That's making peace. It's not building peace. In the Bible, peace is a gift. Do you remember Jesus commissioned the disciples? If you go around houses, leave the gift there of peace. But if they don't want it, take it up. Dust off your shoes and leave. It's as though gift is, you know, peace is in a box. It is not tangible. It's not just an emotion. It's not just a value. It's something that you have the ability through Jesus to give to people. Because peace is a state that only God creates. And that's a state that you and I are in when we follow Jesus, finally.
says Paul. I know it's not final. There's lots of verses come, but I'm not speaking about them. Finally, almost finally. Whatever's true, noble, and then he rehearses six wonderful characteristics. Whatever's true in essence, that's not just forensic truth, like two plus two equals four. This is about morality. This is about values. This is about what inspires society to do the right thing. The word noble used to be used of gods when you worshipped a god and you went and laid the incense down because that god was worthy, he was noble. That's what Paul says here. Whatever is righteous, and that's righteous against God's judgment, not against human standards. So just because you can do something doesn't mean you necessarily should do it. You know, people think, well, there's, it's lawful to do that. Paul's calling us beyond the law here. He's saying there's a bigger law at work here. Whatever's pure, don't hear that talked about much. It is a real purity. It's like gold that comes through the refiner's fire when all the dross is taken out. That's the idea here. Whatever is admirable, that's a really sort of old word, isn't it? It means someone would give a report on you that says this is a person of high standing. That's what the word means. And Paul's saying, instead of all the stuff that's going on in your colony, what you should do is think on things that are excellent and praiseworthy. Because can you imagine if you focus on those things, the other things disappear? The other things move into the shadowlands. And then he has this personal plea. And I wonder how many of us could actually say this to somebody. Whatever you see me do, you do the same. Maybe in public. So Paul says, whatever you have learnt from me and heard from me, I want you on a daily basis to practice this. Because that is when you walk with Jesus. Do you remember the first term that was used of the Christian church? Was the way. Because it was a journey. It wasn't a destination. And people walked with you for a small period of time. Maybe they left you again. But it was always progress towards the end goal, which is Jesus' return or going to heaven. The Catholic term mass comes from three Latin words because at the end of a service, the priest sent people into the world. And the priest would say, in other words, I'm sending you out. It's been done to you, do it to them. Because this word of God isn't to be contained in buildings. God isn't put in a box. He breaks out. And so the message of thankfulness should be something that breaks out from here. And just a concluding couple of slides. For me at the minute in this world, what needs to break out is this call that the Christian church has to be ministers of reconciliation. Paul talks about it to the Corinthian church. He wrote four letters to them. Fragmented church all over the place on blessings and gifting. But he said, you know something, guys? Come together. Because the one thing you can bring the world is once you're reconciled, you can help reconcile the world. And this reconciliation involves two things. It involves peacemaking and peace building. In 1998, you could argue that peace was made here and that a piece of paper was written. Guns stopped for the main part and Covenant said, we're not going to do this for the main part. Peace was made. It was an act in time. Peace building is ongoing. It continues. It continues to change people's hearts and minds. And the church is not just called to make peace. The church is called to build peace. And that's not just in a conflicted society like ours. It's in a conflicted world. Because once we get content with the now, we become complacent. T.S. Eliot in The Journey of the Magi said the thing that motivated the Magi to leave and follow the star was they were no longer ease at this dispensation. They were basically saying, it has to be better than this. 
You not wake up in the morning and say, it's got to be better than this. It can be better than this. Now, I don't want Jesus coming back to change everything as the only result. We're left here as the legacy. We're left here with the Spirit of God in Christ. We're left here to be thankful people, but also to think on the excellent things, but to do something. This is not intellectual volleyball. And the question, I guess, is what is it we're willing to share? Whether we share or not is not up for discussion. We have to share. And what's here is not a shared out future. It has to be a shared future. The problem is we're making do with a shared out future. One for you and one for me. Let's just contain the stuff. Wouldn't it be radical if we as a church said that's not good enough? We're no longer at ease with this dispensation. We want to make a real change. So what is it we're willing to share? Who is it we're willing to share with? What are the terms of the sharing? In other words, if you do that, then I will. Is that what this is about? Or are we saying this is unconditional? And what are we going to do about it? Because if this remains an intellectual discussion, then it never gets done. I want to finish by a quote from one of the people. If he turns up anywhere, I'd love to go and hear him. John Paul Lederach. He's a guy who's invested himself in conflict zones all over the world. And this is what he said reconciliation is. It's about joining God in the mission of reconciliation by building bridges, that's on the one hand, and by bringing down the walls of hostility between individuals and groups. And you know why we can do that? Because Ephesians 4 says there's only one Jesus, there's only one God, and there's no longer male or female, Jew or Gentile, free and slave. All those things have been brought together because Jesus destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Past tense, it's done. So what you and I are called to do is to be thankful people, but to go out and share our mission, our love, our hope, to be peace builders. So that's the challenge and our way up for it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the heavy calling, but also thanks that you've given us the ability and the power, the dunamis, to be able to do something about all of this. And pray for Adrian and the leaders of the church as they look uh, at developing us as a more inclusive church and a church that wants to share everything with people. So help us to be those people. Help us to be radical disciples for Jesus' sake.